You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's February 25th. As many long feared, Russia has begun its invasion of Ukraine, assaulting the country from three sides, bombing its major cities, and initiating what looks to be the largest armed conflict in Europe in decades. As we record early on Friday morning, Russian troops have reportedly entered the outskirts of Kyiv, Ukraine's capital. Yesterday, President Biden announced new sanctions in response to the Russian invasion. Putin is the aggressor, Biden said. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Rand researchers weighed in on Twitter and in the media yesterday as grim news of the attack unfolded. Dara Masakot, who studies Russian defense issues, noted that Russia launched simultaneous attacks on areas like military bases, airports, and cities, some with precision weapons, others with indiscriminate shelling. She called this a clear indication that Russia was planning its attacks for at least three months. Samuel Cherup, a political scientist who focuses on U.S.-Russia policy and deterrence, tweeted that Western leverage to affect the course of these events in the short term is sadly quite limited. Exercising that leverage is absolutely required, he said, but we should have modest expectations of how effective it will be. In an interview with Vox, published prior to the invasion, Scott Boston, a RAND defense analyst, said, quote, it's not going to be a clean war. Russia has, at best, an early 1990s level of precision-guided strike capability compared to the West. They are fundamentally indiscriminate weapons. Fighting happens among people. It happens where people live. It's scary. And finally, Derek Grossman, a defense analyst who focuses on the Indo-Pacific, offered a broader perspective. He tweeted, For the first time in history, China and Russia are both militarily strong and working against the U.S. and democratic interests worldwide. Dark days of great power competition are almost certainly ahead. China, in fact, has been a feature of discussions about America's response to Russia for weeks. Leading up to Russia's attack, a group of unlikely voices in Washington have been calling for U.S. restraint. China hawks. Their argument is that the one true U.S. adversary is China, and responding to Moscow's aggression would detract from America's ability to deter Beijing. But today's geopolitical reality, quote, does not permit such reductionism, says Rand's Raphael Cohen. It's a mistake to think of China and Russia as independent problems, because if Russia can act with impunity in Europe, then China can do the same in Asia. What's more, Washington needs its European allies to confront China, says Cohen. If the U.S. were to leave the Russia problem to the rest of Europe, then what is to prevent Europe from leaving China to the U.S.? Quote, if we sit back and allow authoritarian regimes to bully their smaller democratic neighbors into submission without repercussions, it will send a powerful signal to the rest of the world. America needs a both-and not an either-or strategy, he says. We'll have more for you on Russia's war in Ukraine on next week's show. For more insights from RAND researchers, follow RAND on Twitter. 
We'll be retweeting our researchers over the weekend and throughout next week as the crisis continues. A new RAND study finds that more than half of unemployed American men in their 30s have a criminal history. By age 35, 64% of unemployed men have been arrested, and 46% have been convicted of a crime. This study is the first to estimate the incidence of criminal histories among this population. The findings have implications for both policymakers and employers. For instance, most government programs currently focus on helping unemployed people develop new skills to get them into the workforce. But this evidence suggests that it's important for unemployment services to do more to help people cope with criminal histories. As lead author Sean Bushway put it, quote, if you only focus on skills development, you're missing a big part of the problem. Bushway also notes that employers looking for workers may benefit from reassessing how they view applicants with criminal histories. Quote, most employers believe that most people with criminal histories will commit offenses again, but that is not the case. And the risk of reoffending drops dramatically as people spend more time free in the community without a new conviction. Employers need to adopt a more nuanced approach to the issue. Substance use disorder is common among victims of sex trafficking. Traffickers may exploit individuals' existing substance use to coerce them into sex trafficking or facilitate substance use to keep victims from leaving. Additionally, trafficking victims may be using substances to cope with trauma. The connection between sex trafficking and substance use can complicate responses in sex trafficking cases. For example, when substance use is a factor, it can make it more difficult for law enforcement to develop cases against traffickers. It can also make it harder for advocacy groups to help victims, because the traditional services provided are insufficient for those who have substance use disorders. To better understand this complex problem, Rand recently convened a panel of subject matter experts and criminal justice practitioners. The panel identified important areas of interest to help this vulnerable population, including addressing racial disparities and systemic racism that affects the perceptions and recognition of sex trafficking victims, identifying and removing barriers that prevent sex trafficking victims from receiving substance use treatment, and ensuring that sex trafficking victims aren't treated unfavorably within the criminal justice system. Many states are passing or considering laws that limit the discussion of racism, sexism, and bias in their classrooms. But a large body of research suggests that teaching students explicitly about issues of identity, diversity, equity, and bias, sometimes generally referred to as anti-bias education, can lead to positive outcomes. Results from a new RAND survey provide insights into which teachers engage in anti-bias education, how prepared they feel to teach anti-bias subjects, the instructional materials they use, and more. In the survey, anti-bias education was defined as an approach to education that emphasizes the development of students' positive social identities and fosters their comfort and respect for all dimensions of diversity. It is also intended to raise their awareness of and promote their capacity to act against bias and injustice. Here's a glimpse at what survey respondents had to say. Nearly three out of four of the K-12 English, math, and science teachers surveyed reported that they do provide some anti-bias instruction. 
Teachers reported using a wide variety of materials to provide anti-bias education, including those they found or created themselves and those provided by their school or district. However, teachers did not appear to widely use existing instructional materials that are designed to specifically address anti-bias topics. And many teachers said that they did not have professional learning opportunities that prepared them to address anti-bias topics. Overall, these findings suggest that many teachers across the U.S. likely support an approach to education that nurtures students' social identities and addresses systemic inequities. And it appears that teachers may actually want more support from their schools and districts in providing anti-bias education. Since 2004, the United Kingdom has seen a sharp decline in students learning new languages. This will likely have a negative effect on the UK's ability to compete internationally. After all, English is not the sole driver in key sectors of the economy in which other languages matter equally, if not more, in reducing trade barriers. A new report by researchers from RAND Europe and the University of Cambridge estimates the potential value that language education can offer. They looked at the cost-to-benefit ratios of increasing investments in one of four languages, Arabic, Mandarin, French, or Spanish, in UK secondary schools. The return on these investments would be at least two to one. So for every one pound spent on foreign language education, the UK would see two pounds in benefits. Over 30 years, that would amount to billions of pounds added to the UK economy. Rand Europe economist Marco Hafner, who contributed to the study, emphasizes that the idea behind this analysis was not to diminish education in STEM or other subjects and replace them with languages. Rather, the intent is to demonstrate the value of improving the quality and quantity of language education across the UK. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered in this episode, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.